This is the word of the Lord. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why this bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush. Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. This is the word of the Lord. Seated. Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to see you all here this morning. Um, Hey, happy Independence Day weekend. I hope you all, we alluded to last night that there was probably fireworks going off in your neighborhood. Mine were well into the evening hours as well, Um, but we're here this morning. And I hope that you had a great time celebrating. Um, Independence Day weekend is a time when we think a lot about some of the earliest heroes in our nation's history. Those who laid down their, um, their lives, their comfort, their security to make sure that we could live in a country where we can do this on Sunday morning without worry of reprisal. And that's something we're very thankful for. Um, And as I was thinking about that this morning and this week as I was preparing, I was thinking about this topic of heroes, and I kind of discovered something in my mind, and I want to test it this morning, if that's all right. So if you would, just in your mind, think about the last story that you read or watched that really just gripped you. The last story that had a really powerful plot to it that really sucked you in. Just think about that for a second. And answer this question for me, just in your mind, think, think about this in your mind. If one character was to be taken out of that story, and you were going to replace that character, who would it be? Who would be the character you would replace in that gripping story? Odds are it wasn't cab driver number two, right? It wasn't an extra that, that has no name or gets 15 seconds of a mention or just a quick mention on a page somewhere, and, and it's not accounted for at all. I mean... We want to be heroes, don't we? We don't want to be an extra. We don't want to be a side character or a bench warmer. We want to be the hero. We want to be Harry, not, not Ron. We want to be Frodo, not Sam. Okay, here's another one to show that I'm not a total nerd. I can't count how many times in my backyard or in the driveway I was Michael Jordan trying to hit the last second shot so that we could win the championship. I never wanted to be the guy on the bench watching. We want to be heroes, don't we? We want to be the ones who overcome the odds, reverse injustice, defeat evil, the likes of Voldemort or Sauron or the Utah Jazz. But, but this is real life, though, isn't it? It's not a fairy tale. And even at this stage in my life, I'm old enough, have lived long enough to know that I make a lousy hero. And we can all identify with this. I don't want to use a tired illustration, but when I, when I read articles or see reports or just or look outside at the brokenness of our city or of our nation, of our world, and I think of giving myself totally, 100%, all of my energy to just one cause that deserves our attention, I would just be a squirt gun aiming at a five-alarm fire. And that's just one fire. 
To make it a step more personal, how many times in your life, um, if you're like me, have you felt totally out of control with your actions? There's a habit or a behavioral pattern that you know is bad or wrong or hurtful to others or yourself, but you just can't seem to kick it. I mean, how helpless are we if at times even our own actions feel outside of our, outside of our control? Not really the stuff of heroes. Well, last week we started a series where we're going to journey through the life of a man who's very well acquainted with that feeling. His name is Moses, and Moses was born into a very particular time in history, a time when his nation was oppressed by a brutal regime who kept them in slavery for 400 years. And at the time Moses was born, there was a prevailing law in the land that every male Israelite baby, which describes Moses, was to be killed immediately upon their birth. This was the emperor Pharaoh's way to push down any thought of rebellion and keep the Israelites in their place in slavery. But Moses survived. And through a series of miraculous events, Moses not only survives, but at three years old finds himself being adopted by the daughter of Pharaoh, one of the most powerful women in the whole world. And for the next 37 years until age 40, he gets the best teaching in the most enlightened country known to man at the time. He serves in Pharaoh's court underneath the man who's the most powerful in the known world. And some traditions even believe that he was being groomed to be the next Pharaoh. So talk about strategic positioning, right? This is your hero, huh? Until... In one 24-hour period, a day that Moses literally takes matters into his own hands, it all comes crashing down. When Moses, with his bare hands, kills another man and goes from prince of Egypt to a wanted murderer on the run for his life, rejected by the very people he was supposed to save. After four hundred years of slavery, the one glimmer of hope for the Israelite people is snuffed out like that. And Moses is lost to the wilderness. It's not just a physical wilderness either. It's a spiritual and emotional wilderness. I want you to think on this with me. For 40 years, Moses spends his life dwelling on his failures, thinking on how he came up short, how in one moment of revenge, he ruined every opportunity to help all those poor people in slavery that he was positioned to help. He's in a land of despair and depravity, a place where guilt and shame rule his life. For day after day for 40 years, the realization that everything that was done for him, his miraculous birth, everyone who laid their life on the line to save him, it's all a waste. I can only imagine the nights when Moses would jerk awake in the wilderness after another dream, imagining that moment that his hands took the life of another. The deafening silence of a wilderness night matching the silenced voice of the man whose life he took. Matching the deafening silence that surrounded the questioning and the calls of a nation in slavery. So this is your hero, God? This is your hope? But in the darkest moment of night, one little ray of sunshine, almost too small to see, came across the horizon. 
their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God knew. Two most important words in this story, because when God knows, everything changes, and everything's about to change, not only for Israel, but for Moses as well. So we pick back up the life of Moses, now 40 years since we last saw him. He's 80 years old now. He's been a shepherd. He's been a foreigner in a land that's not his own, a man without a family, a man without a heritage, all alone out in the desert, shepherding. Until one day, he sees something really weird. And you all heard it read earlier today, but I'll just summarize where we get to. Moses is having a conversation with a bush. Okay? And the bush is calling him by name, telling him to take off his shoes because where he's standing is holy. All the while, the bush is on fire but it's not actually being consumed. So, okay, full disclosure, if you come and tell me that you're having that experience, I'm referring you to a counselor right now. (laughs) This is not a common thing to go through, but Moses is in the confusion and in in the swirl of emotions. What in the world is going on here? Have I been out in the sun too long? Do I have enough water today? The voice identifies itself. I am God. I am God. And he's not just, it's not just that he's God, but listen to how he identifies himself. And he does this all throughout the passage in verse, chapter 3, verse 6. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Interestingly, God identifies himself with a family. See, there was this man, Abraham, way back when. And God promised to Abraham, you're going to have a family and it's going to be so big, you won't even be able to count your descendants. It'll be like the stars in the sky. And here's this God identifying himself with this family, with Moses' family, the family that rejected him, the family that sent him out to be a foreigner and a wanderer in a place that was not his home. And I almost have to wonder if Moses' heart starts pounding out of his chest. Is he, wait, is he saying what I think he's saying? Do I get to like, be back with my family after what I did? And in the midst of this swirl of emotion going on, In Moses' mind, God goes on. He says in verse 7, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because they're taskmasters. And I know they're suffering. I know they're suffering. And we talk about this a lot around here. If you've been around, you've heard this. But this is a very specific word for know. It's not an informational type of know where you will get an A on a test if you know it. This is a very relational type of no. This is the kind of no that leads me to bring home peach roses for my wife, Courtney, when she's having a a rough day because of how they make her feel and how they brighten her day and they're her favorite flower. This is the kind of no that leads my wife, Courtney, to turn off the country music when I get home because that's just noise. I mean, if we're being real about it right now. This is a very relational no. It's very intimate. It's the kind of no that experiences what the other person experiences or feels what the other person feels. And a lot of times, it provokes someone to action. When you feel what the other person feels or experience what the other person experiences, you step in to action on their behalf. So what does God do? What is the action that is brought out of him because he knows the suffering of his people? Verse 8, I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians 
and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land. God has come down. And can I just stop here for a second? This is something that is utterly unique. Search every religion, search every philosophy, every worldview in the history of the world or even just current today. There is no place where God comes down for his people. You've probably heard it said that every religion in the world or philosophy are paths up a mountain that will all lead to the same place so they might take a different route. But we've already established that we make lousy heroes. I mean, can we even make the climb? And God, overwhelmed by his knowledge, his relational, experiential, emotional knowledge of our own inability, comes down off the mountain to get his people. Only in Christianity do we have a God who comes down for us. And he's come down here for his people, for Israel, to rescue them out of slavery. And he's going to send Moses to go do it. Now, you, if you know the story, you'll remember that last time Moses was in Egypt, his approval rating was at an all-time low. We're talking a lot about approval ratings, right? Moses is the worst of the worst. He was part of the Egyptian culture, right? Because he was adopted into their culture and raised in their culture, and yet they rejected him, and rightfully so. He committed murder. And then he was also a part of the Israelite culture because he was born an Israelite. He was meant to save the Israelites, but they rejected him because they witnessed him commit murder. So we can understand when Moses' response to this is, who, me? You want to send, send me now? What about back then? I was a man. I was 40. I was ready to go. I was at my peak. I was in a place of power and prestige. You want to use me now? When I'm 80, I've been a shepherd for four. I don't even remember how to talk to people. If it's too humid, I can't make the walk back to Egypt. You want to use me now? You see, what we realize here is that there's a wrestling match going on all throughout this conversation. Moses misunderstands what God is asking of him, and he thinks, he thinks he's meant to be the hero. He thinks the success or failure of God's work of deliverance for Israel rides on his shoulders alone. And God gently but consistently reminds him, well, actually, it's not about you. Actually, it's because I send you that this is going to work. Actually, it's because I will be with you that you will find success. Now, Moses, not understanding this, realizes that if he's going to go back to these people who have rejected him, he's going to need proof. He's going to need to convince these people that he is from God. So he asks God, Give me your name. If I can tell them your name, they, they might believe that I came from you. And listen to how God responds. In chapter 3, verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. This word, I am, is a confusing word. We've spent a lot of time over the centuries trying to figure out what it means. You've probably heard it before. When we try to transliterate it into English, it shows up as either like Jehovah or Yahweh. Um, but they're all this Hebrew verb that is simply I am. I am. And I just got to ask the question, what in the world does that mean? I mean, he doesn't identify himself as the God of creation, the God of, of the Israelites or all these. He says, no, I am. 
I am. And a lot of commentators say a lot on this, but I'll most agree on what I think is happening in this passage is God is saying, I am present. I am here. I exist in this realm. You see, it's God's presence with his people that allows him to know, to experience, to feel their suffering. So in other words, I think it it could go something like this. Imagine an Israelite calling out in prayer in the middle of the night. Is there anybody out there? I am. Is there anybody even listening to us? I am. Is there anyone who will deliver us? I am. You see, it's precisely because God is present with his people, feels and experiences their suffering, their pain, their oppression, that he is provoked to action. He is there. He's not just there with Israel in their slavery, but he's also there with Moses in his wilderness. And this is equally profound. This place where Moses was sent away in exile to flee for his life. This land of loneliness and depravity and despair where he was all alone left at the devices of his guilt and shame to feel the weight of his failure over him. God is there. In fact, it's not in the place of power and prestige and education in Egypt where Moses meets God. It's when he is lost in the wilderness after his own failure, that God reveals himself. God is there in the wilderness. He is present with Moses. And it's precisely because God is there that this land that ought to be a place of depravity and despair is in fact a land of renewal and hope. This place that ought to be a dead end for Moses, in fact, is a new beginning. Because God is there. God has revealed that about himself in his name. That's the message he gives to Moses when he goes back to Israel to say, God is here. He knows. He is provoked to action. The God that promised way back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that he would rescue you is here to do it now. But Moses remains unconvinced. He says, no, not even that is good enough. You see, anybody can come and say, I got a word from the Lord. In fact, we know this all throughout the New Testament. We have warnings when people come and say, I got a word from the Lord. We're supposed to listen to them, take it to the scriptures, in community, under the leadership of our elders and our pastors, and we're supposed to evaluate whether this is actually a word from the Lord. That's just good practice, right? That's just good wisdom. And he knows Israel's going to do that, so he says, I need something more. I need a sign. I need something tangible that they can see or feel to prove that I'm from God, that I'm from you. So God gives him, for just for good measure, three signs. And I want to I camp on the first one because I think this is just fascinating what God is doing here. God says to him, okay, what's in your hand? Now, what is in Moses' hand? A staff, not a sword, not a spear, not the reins to a chariot, not the scepter of a king, a staff. The crude instrument of a shepherd, it's just a stick. So God says, Moses, why don't you put that stick on the ground? I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but so Moses throws the stick on the ground and there in front of him, his staff turns into a snake and Moses runs because he is a smart man. Can I tell you something? Just so you get to know me, I hate, there's nothing in this world I hate more than snakes. Snakes terrify me. If I wake up in the middle of the night, stumble into my bathroom and see this, that's the end of me. 
you will never hear from me again. I will be lost, lost into my own mind at that point. But what's more important about this snake is not just how terrifying it is, but it's what it represents to Moses and at his time. You see, we know this from, our, from history. A lot of royalties at different times in history will identify with a certain animal. Like English kings will at times identify with a lion. Well, at this time, the pharaoh identifies himself with snakes. It's a sign of Egyptian royalty. So much so that when you see paintings like this one up here, you can know who Pharaoh is because he's the one with the snake coming out of his headdress, out of his crown. That's how in their culture they marked who Pharaoh was in a picture. Okay? So here now Moses' perfectly good staff, nothing wrong with it, is transformed into a snake that's terrifying Moses and slithering around on the ground. So now God says, and this is like a watershed moment, pick up the snake. And as Moses' trembling hand closes around the tail of the snake, the sign of that great emperor and ruler of the world in the hands of God's messenger becomes a staff. Just an instrument to be used for God's purposes. See, we can get caught up a lot, and we should, that God comes down in love, comes down in mercy, comes down in grace, and, and he does do that. That is true. But let's not forget that in this passage, when God comes down for his people, he comes down in fire. He comes down in holiness and in righteousness, and what is meant to be shelter and warmth and protection for his people is judgment for his enemies. But that's next week's sermon, and I'm not preaching it, so lest I get in trouble, I'm going to stop on that. But suffice it to say, suffice it to say, Moses was right to hide his face from this God. God gives, then after this, two more signs. And the three of them together function as signs always do in Scripture. God is showing through these miraculous signs that he is capable of doing what he said he would do. He is able to rescue. Look, if he can turn this staff into a snake and then back into a staff again like that, he can rescue people out of Egypt. He can do that. He's able to do that. All throughout Scripture, we see God backing up his claims. He has made audacious promises to us, but he can do it. And he backs it up in moments like these by showing Moses, look, I can do this because I will be with you. You can do this. So God has come down. He's shown us that he has come down for his people to deliver them and to bring them up. He's shown us that he is present with his people, that he knows their suffering, knows their pain, and he showed us that he is able to do something about it. He's able to do something about it. And in the face of this God, I think there's one of maybe three ways that we can respond to him based on Moses' life. And so we'll look at those briefly, and then we'll be done this, or I'll be done this morning. First, we can approach God with kind of a blind optimism. This is how Moses responded to God in his youth. We can show up, God can say, hey, I've got this plan, and we can be like, got it, you need, don't say anymore, I got this, you got the right person for the job. I am, listen, I am so gifted, I am so talented, you are, you, you, good choice, you are lucky to have me. I got this. And if you approach God that way, focused on your adequacy, on your ability to be the hero, let me gently remind you that Moses, once upon a time, had that thought. And when he acted on it, he spent 40 years in the wilderness trying to learn his lesson that he was wrong. Moses is not the hero of his story, and guess what? I'm not the hero of my story. You're not the hero of yours. 
God is the hero. Now, we could come out of that blind optimism, having probably experienced our own shortcomings, and we can fall down to the depths of a kind of a battered pessimism. This is the kind of person who says, anything I'm involved in is, because of my involvement, going to fail. This is a person who knows very intimately their own failing and thinks that's the only way that they can operate in God's kingdom. Moses has a similar response here in chapter 4, verse 10. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and tongue. See, in, this, in that verse, we see that Moses still thinks he's supposed to be the hero. He still thinks it rides on him. But the difference now is that he knows he can't do it. He's not good enough for it. He feels his inadequacy, and he says, therefore, I must fail. So much so that when God reminds him that God actually created his mouth and his tongue and his lips, and God actually gives the ability to speak or withholds it, Moses just abandons all pretense and says, please, God, just send someone else. I can't do it. I can't do it. And if that describes you this morning, I'd love to say, to remind you, that God knows intimately, emotionally, experientially, all of your shortcomings, all of your sins, all of your inadequacy. And yet, he came down off the mountain for you to deliver you and to bring you up. He has done that for us. God is our hero. He's the only one who can deliver us. Well, the third group of people probably has experienced their own inadequacy and has come down off of their blind optimism, but has also come to rest in God's adequacy and his goodness and has come up off of their battered pessimism. And yet, you realize, just as Moses does here, that that doesn't mean God's done with you. In fact, that probably means God's just getting started. God may be asking you to do something really scary in this season of your life. He might be asking you to pick up the phone and call that loved one or friend that you haven't talked to since that fight. He might be asking you to share the gospel in your workplace or confront your boss. He might be asking you to give more than you feel comfortable giving. He might be asking you to take in a foster child. He might be asking you to make a big vocational change or a big move. And that's just scary. And if that describes you, and if the community of believers around you has helped affirm that this is in fact what God is asking of you, then remember, God is the hero of your story. Hear what God started to say to Moses way back in chapter 3, in verse 12. But I will be with you. The success or failure of your life is not on your shoulders. Because God is your hero if you are following Christ. You see, just like the invitation God made to Abraham to come, or to uh, Moses to come back into this family, God has invited us into his family. He's invited us to take part in the work that he's doing in this world. And there's one very important reason why. It is because that in the face of our own inadequacy and shortcomings, God came down for us to deliver us and to bring us up in the person of Jesus Christ. Because he knew we couldn't make the climb. Jesus Christ, who was also known as Emmanuel, God with us, came so that he could experience what we experience, 
to know our pain in a relational, emotional, experiential sort of know our pain, our suffering, and our temptation, and yet remain without sin. Living a perfect life so that his perfection, which God demands, could be attributed to us. Dying a perfect death that we were supposed to die so that we wouldn't have to. And then in the greatest sign in the history of the world that punctuates that God is able to do what he said he would do, he rose again on the third day from the dead. He came alive again, forever pronouncing that God is able to do what he said he would do. God has delivered us from our sin, from our death, from our future separated from God. And he has come alive to an unending perfect life that he offers those who will follow him. There is your hero. God is the hero of our story. He's come down for us to deliver us, to be with us, and he is able to save us. Won't you follow him this morning? Because let me tell you something, this has always been his plan. This has always been his plan. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful that you have come down off the mountain for us. Truly, there's no way we can be saved from our sins. There's no way we can worship you the way we ought to without you having come for us, without you dwelling among us, without your ability that has been sufficient for us and is sufficient for us. God, we thank you. And I pray this morning, wherever we're at in our relationship with you, that as we walk out these doors, we would be reminded of the good news that you deliver us. May our lives be marked as a response to that truth. God, that you are good enough on our behalf and that you have saved us. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.